You're listening to Vermont Credit Unions On Air, a service of the Association of Vermont Credit Unions. As we record this episode, midterm elections are less than three weeks away. With it will come wholesale change in the federal, statewide, and legislative offices representing Vermonters. Talking with us about all of that today, and maybe including some aspects of interest to credit unions, are two of ABCU's advocacy team point people. Adam Nekrasen is president of Nekrasen Group, steering one of Vermont's leading government affairs and communications firms. And Jessica Oski is Nekrasen Group's day-to-day manager of issues important to credit unions in the Vermont State House. Welcome to both of you, and thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks, Joe. You know, as the state and federal government focus on COVID-related issues started to fade earlier this year, it seems like so did the interest of a lot of elected officials in in continuing on in their elected office, or at least a new interest in a different office for some of them. So that makes for a lot for us to talk about today, and there's no shortage of places to start, but Adam, why don't we leave it to you to, to get us going? Sure. Thanks for that, Joe. And it is an exciting time in Vermont politics. We are looking at a generational change in our elected leaders. On November 8th, um, not only will we have uh, a number of hot um, contested elections, but we'll have two interesting features for the first time. Universal vote by mail will be um, on display and be very interesting to see if that affects voter turnout and the results. And the second intriguing aspect before we get to the name game of who's going to be in what position is that there are a couple propositions, constitutional changes that are unusual in Vermont because it's like having an issue referendum on the ballot. States like California and Washington, other states have constant voting on issues, but this will be a unique election in that regard. We could talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but Great. Um, the the feature focus, of course, is on the federal election with the retirement of Patrick Leahy and the elevation of Congressman Welch to the U.S. Senate seat, um, and that's a contested election. But also we had a very um, hotly contested Democratic primary for the congressional seat to replace Peter Welch, and you know we can talk a little bit more about how Becca Ballant, the Democratic candidate, is faring there. Um, Meanwhile, of great interest to the credit union movement is the state capital elections where um, we did see a ton of retirements. Right. Uh, the treasurer, the attorney general, the lieutenant governor, all are examples of offices that are now open seats where we see um, candidates vying vigorously right now. Um, then over at the state house, the, the great COVID retirement led to uh, one-third of the Senate retiring. That's a lot of experience and veteran lawmakers that uh, hung up their um, voting pen. And on the House side, combined with the previous biennium, we're looking at fully two-thirds of the House of Representatives being new lawmakers. Uh, underneath all of that are real questions about what the nature of the political power will be in the State House with Um, Phil Scott really defining a lot of that. Uh, Two key questions to watch will be, um, will Governor Scott, if he's reelected, and Jessica will talk about that more in a moment, um, will he have a uh, veto backing position in the House? Stated differently, will there be enough Republicans in the House to sustain his vetoes? And that's really a big 
deal to watch in this election. Um, and then the second kind of curious question is, will Phil Scott's coattails bring along the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, Joe Benning, who's in a contested election with uh, former lieutenant governor David Zuckerman? And so that's kind of a high-level setup. We'll talk more about Mike Pichak and Charity Clark uh, and, and new rising stars like that in a few minutes. But Jessica, what's your sense of the kind of main features of the coming election season? I think you did a good job covering uh, the highlights. In the gubernatorial race, um, you know, the predictions and the polls are suggesting that Scott will sail to victory. Um, but his challenger, unlike the challengers he's had in the past three elections, um, is really uh, gaining some momentum. Not probably enough momentum to to win, but enough momentum to set him on his heels a bit. Um, and that we haven't seen. And that could be part of the big blue wave, um, you know, a, a hangover from what's going on nationally. Um, but it, it is in the past month or so, uh, Brenda Siegel's um, momentum has been a bit of a surprise. So can I ask a question? Um, if Scott's opponent does better than what he or his campaign had anticipated, or the party had anticipated, is that any kind of omen for what his next administration or continued administration is going to have to deal with? Will cast some doubts on them or something? I think it will serve to you know, weaken him a bit. He's he has issued more vetoes than any other previous governor, right. um, and a, a slightly weakened position, combined with um, a veto-proof or close to veto-proof majority in both bodies, could serve to embolden the legislature at his peril, <laughs> and may bring him to the table more. It is interesting because uh, the. Favor, the governor's favorability rating is very high. Mm -hmm. um, and compared to other governors around America, he's considered the most popular governor with his electorate um, in America. Right. Nevertheless, it does feel like his um, electoral support is um, waning compared to its peak. The same thing happened to Howard Dean. I don't know that he was super popular the way Phil Scott has been, but over time, governors win by less and right. less, and it does kind of weaken their sense of mandate. Um, the governors in um, out on the campaign trail now, and we're seeing the statewide debates on television and in the media, and it does seem that he's being pressed pretty hard by his contender to, to bring new ideas forward, and there's a little bit of incumbent fatigue that sets in because he's governing in every answer on the campaign trail, which makes him have very kind of moderating answers and therefore leaves the electorate less excited. Uh, so he's kind of stuck with the weight of governing every day, and he's got a challenger who's bringing a lot of energy and excitement. I don't want to sidetrack you both, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it, you make me want to ask when you when you mention Adam about you know other gubernatorial races in the country and whatnot and. Uh, this one for Scott being maybe somewhat more competitive than past ones and whatnot. Um, do you think, both of you think that it's it's in some ways a little bit easier for a challenger in some of these races, whether it's Vermont or elsewhere, 
to get some traction and to be maybe not ultimately successful, but to get more traction than in the past, only because, uh, you know, the politics of this country have become so divisive. You know, you're either one side or the other, and there's not a whole lot of middle ground on everything um, among the masses and whatnot. And, you know, there's people in both parties probably that have been pushing for some of that divisiveness and whatnot to rally the troops and whatnot. And so <clears throat> does it make it easier for a challenger to play off of that and to, um, you know, throw some more slings and arrows more successfully at the incumbent they're opposing? Uh there's, it's definitely easier for candidates to reach voters now than it ever has been yeah. between the robocalling that they do. You wouldn't know it's robocalling, but there's um, there are programs that mm-hmm. help connect the, uh, the candidate to your phone in a very easy way, um, and social media. So there's a lot of easy ways for candidates to reach voters that they didn't have in the past. Sure. Um, I don't think that divisiveness plays really well still in Vermont. Mm-hmm. I think voters kind of reject that. Um, I think that it's candidates that put new and challenging ideas or challenge uh, an incumbent's record is what plays well, but not the kind of politics that we see um, slinging National arrows world, and yeah. stuff. I don't think that that plays well in Vermont. I think it's interesting to point out that over the last 30 years, We've had a Republican governor for 13 years and a Democrat for 17 years. Um, at the same time, the Democrats have controlled the the House for all but four years in those 30 years and the Senate for all but five years. Mm. So Vermont voters are an odd bunch mm-hmm. that we have such balance in our executive and um, no balance in our legislative races. Right. One question on my mind is how much outside spending there will be, which is often where you can see the more theatrical um, tactics come in. Um, Just watch the Channel 3 news and see the advertising from New Hampshire's U.S. Senate contested election to Mm -hmm. see what that divisive negative advertising really is all about. so far, we have not seen that. We didn't see it in the Democratic congressional primary, where each candidate stayed positive on their message. They did some contrast and compare type um, advocacy, but no one really went negative right. at their opponent. And the outside spending so far hasn't gone super negative. And it's really when that outside spending comes that we see the more um, attack ad oriented campaigning. Uh, the uh, National Governors Association or some special interests associated with them would be the force to bring it at Phil Scott, and you know it would come in the last few weeks, so we shall see. Hmm. Interesting. So what's next? <laughs> Where do we go from here? <laughs> well, the lieutenant governor's race is one that we know um, is curious and interesting. You know, my setup for that, and then over to Jessica, is – Will Governor Scott have coattails that carry the Republican candidate Joe Benning, a state senator, to victory? Um, He hasn't in the past. Well, I know, but (laughs) um, he is so popular. And there's a question, will um, voters 
um, have the same enthusiasm for David Zuckerman that they've had in the past. He tends to be the Bernie Sanders type candidate. Right, right. And we saw in the congressional Democratic primary that the Bernie Sanders endorsed candidate, Becca Ballant, really got a lot of momentum out of that. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there seems to be a strong love of Bernie Sanders politics that shows up at the ballot box that David Zuckerman will try to capitalize on. But at the same time, Phil Scott's among the most popular governors in America, and Joe Benning fits into that mold. He does, but voters don't know Joe Benning, and they do know David Zuckerman. He's run many statewide races at this point, including a run for governor. He has deep roots in in the in the soil um, <laughs> as, farmer. Yeah, as right. a farmer, right. um, but he also has an operation all around the state. Most people have no idea who Joe Benning is. He is, I agree, he is likable, um, and he's relatively moderate um, as Republicans go these days, but um, but I would be surprised, and the polling right now is not in his favor. Right, and, and neither candidate seems to have a ton of money for, outside to, for advertising and spending. Um, so the default goes to David Zuckerman, but it is, um, like with Phil Scott, a question of by how much. It seems like the lieutenant governor race, even though it might be slanted one way more than the other, is potentially a more competitive race than uh, than the gubernatorial race. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just because there's no incumbent. Right? There's, it's an open seat. You know, Zuckerman is the closest thing to an incumbent, but that's, you know, he, he wasn't in the office most recently, mm -hmm. so... For the work that we do, definitely the biggest question is going to be, will the Democrats in the House get more than 100 solid seats? Um, in the past, they last year they did have 100 seats, but it was combined with independents and progressives, um, and they failed to override by one vote twice, hmm. um, and that's hard for them. It looks good. They have a really strong slate of candidates this year. Um, they seem to be doing well. My prediction is that they will get more than a hundred votes in the House. So that is gonna that's gonna make a big difference, and it it could embolden the the speaker to do more um, of what's on her agenda, and it will also hard for her to say no to the things that are on right. her agenda right. as well. Right. Um, she's not going to be, I mean, in the past, she's been able to say, well, that the, that won't fly with the governor. Well, yeah. well that, that's not going to be, um, that's not going to be able to be used as an excuse. Mm -hmm. So if the legislative Democrats in the House get more than 100 and they feel solid as a block, meaning they won't have members that are like, well, I'm a Democrat, but I'm, I'm with the governor on this. What it does is it changes the question of will we override the governor's veto or not. Um, it moves it from the House Republicans backing the governor to a question of whether some um, veteran Democratic senators are with the governor or not. So it moves the, the, the power from behind the governor over to a few key veteran senators like Jane Kitchell uh, from Caledonia County. Dick Sears from Bennington County, and uh, they then become the swing votes on the questions that are in the margins, things like gun violence prevention, where the governor has a veto track record. Paid family leave. Uh, family leave um, policies. 
uh, some um, climate change-like legislation. We haven't seen this partisan divide emerge in the credit union space for the better, right. and that's a, a, a good thing because being in a partisan divide is an area of controversy that's uncomfortable. Um, but it kind of colors the entire atmosphere in the state house. Who's got the upper hand is going to be determined by uh, the makeup of the house. Another unknown factor in the house that could make the speaker's job difficult, even if she has um, over a hundred votes, is that nine of fourteen committee chairs retired, and. So she's going to have a lot of new committee chairs and some powerful committees, including Ways and Means and Appropriations and Health Care, are all um, going to have new leadership. And it takes a while for a new leader. It takes a while for an old leader. But it takes a while for a new leader to get acquainted with their committee members, to sure. figure out their process, and then to try and move hard things um, is is a challenge. And you know, we forget that the legislative session is only two years. So hard things take a while. So it's not unusual when, if you say what's on the agenda for the House leadership or for the whole legislature this year, it's things we've heard before. Workforce, housing, childcare. That's what they've been talking about for the last five or six years, but those are hard things and they take a while. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see if the... Um, these committee chairs can get their be organized and start moving things forward so that there can be some successes for the speaker. Right, which leads back to the Senate. So now yep. we have two roads leading to the state Senate being the center of the um, power in the state capitol, kind of in between the governor, Phil Scott, and a more liberal house. Another factor in the Senate is that there's really going to be a, a change up of the old guard. The old guard is being replaced by the next generation of leaders in the Senate. While their turnover was only um, one-third, which is not unusual, the the faces that are leaving are some very long-term mm -hmm. senators have bowed out. And the new folks coming in are... Um, I mean, I could say they're young, but that's not the point. They're like have different energy. Yeah. They're um, they're coming in with um, a, with a lot of um, strong sense of themselves, and so and some of them were previously House members, so they've got some experience um, entering. So they have a, they have a passion for change yeah. compared to uh, the uh, veteran centers that retired, having a sense of status quo. Status quo governing with marginal change. So you think it could be a more uh, aggressive Senate than? There's going to be some wrangling. Last two years. Yes, yes, yes. Hmm. The pro tem's going to have its hands full. Within the party, even. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Wow. Yep. So it's going to be, it's a shakeup, um, and then you know to keep the threads rolling on. So where do we find? Consistency. Well, Mike Pichek, the former commissioner of the Department of Finance and Regulation, um, is now on a track to become the state treasurer. And um, for the credit union movement, this is of great interest because he moves from being, you know, our chief regulator to an elected statewide office that has some kind of connection to sure. our work, and uh, he has a real strong sense of financial services. 
when you kind of hear Mike Pichak talk, he really um, sees the treasurer's office as being more than just the bond rating and, you know, keeping track of the money. You know, he has a vision for how can we, you know, state, how can state government promote the economy? And I think we'll hear more and more about that from him over time. But he really is one to watch, uh, not just for his time coming as treasurer, but there's already speculation well, that he would later, yeah. come after Phil Scott and run for governor. So, um, you know, I was reading this article online, uh, I forget it was Seven Days or some other publication, just as you came in, uh, where some reporter chose to do this lengthy uh, investigative reporting, I was Digger, digger yeah. uh, about uh, his EB-5 involvement mm-hmm. and, you know, who did he report to and what was his involvement and so on and so forth. Uh, and it, go, it goes on at length. Um, and, of course, uh, he's quoted in there as saying, you know, I don't hear much about that on the campaign trail and, you know, kind of dismissive of it, um, as are some other people quoted in there, too. But yet it didn't stop that article from going on and on <laughs> on about all of that. Um, and apparently, and I, I guess I didn't know this or wouldn't have had any reason to know this, there, there are some lawsuits, you know, outside of... Um, the state government stuff that you know have been filed and that he's been named in and whatnot. I don't know if any are active at the moment, but there's some attorney for the investor group that they were interviewing and whatnot. And of course, he had a differing opinion. Do you think all of that EB five stuff um, or anything like it gets you know casts any kind of shadow on on Mike at all, or do most voters out there either don't care or don't know anything about it? I don't. I think that most voters don't understand it, and um, what they understand is that Mike Pichek played a role, but played a role as a regulator and did his job. Right. And I think as much as VT Digger um, really has taken on the mantle of being the investigator for mm-hmm. uh, the EB five scandal, they haven't really been able to come up with much um, on. Susan Donegan or Mike Pichak, for that matter. Susan Donegan was the commissioner at the time. Right. And, um, you know, there may be some dark shadows on some members of the administration, but I don't think it's Mike Pichak and, and Susan Donegan. But um, I haven't, again, I don't think voters are um, really fixated on this issue either. Yeah, voters gen- tend to vote. Their personal perspective and the EB five scandal didn't touch, average, you know, average people. Yeah, and it's, well, there's a big hole in them. Um, yeah, in Newport, <laughs> they would beg to differ. Um, I think the EB five scandal hurt then Governor Peter Shumlin, mm-hmm. but uh, it will have been some time since the kind of hands on the wheel activity happened around that, and it just by a couple years from now will kind of be old news. Actually, Shumlin was quoted in this article as having kind things to say about Mike Pichek and said that you know he should get a medal for you know his involvement and in uncovering. That's funny stuff because he's not quoted very much any huh. anywhere right. anymore. Right, right. Yeah. I, thought, I thought it was interesting. So, so yes, so people in uh, Newport have you know that whole Newport area have that hole uh, in the ground to uh, remind them of what happened in the past. Just like in Burlington, there's a, a big hole in the middle of downtown to remind people of what what's happened there too um so um 
Do you think, uh, you know, you were talking about the Senate and then, you know, maybe a supermajority in, in the House when it comes to vetoes and whatnot. Um, any, to whatever degree that there's uh, some new tension, let's say, um, because you've got uh, new leadership in the Senate that's maybe a little bit more, got a little bit more gumption to tackle harder questions or whatnot, or because, um, you know, the, the, the powers that be, uh, the makeup of the House feels more emboldened because now they have a supermarket, or whatever reasons and everything. Do you think there's much, um, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of restraint in, in what leadership allows to happen or, or reacts to with an eye towards the next election, you know, two years down the road, or do they just deal with the here and now and let's, you know, do what's best today? No, they, the uh, leaders of the General Assembly definitely think ahead and have a, a part of their work is partisan-minded. And so they're trying to lead change, um, create a distinction between their party and the governor's party along the way, um, but at the same time not do things that are wildly unpopular. And with the recession in the air and um, the end of the kind of big surge of federal one-time spending kind of winding down in the coming biennium, it will be back to governing with hard brass tax. Hmm. The job in the statehouse is do we tax or not? Do we spend or not? Do we regulate or not? And tax, spend, and regulate powers um, can be made to sound very popular, but at the end of the day, they're, they're a challenge. And in the Vermont State House, voters feel very quickly what is being talked about. So they, they do bring some restraint, but at the beginning of the biennium, they'll have strong gusto for partisan distinction. And Adam mentioned this before, but the biggest restraint really is in the corner um, office of the Senate, which is Jane Kitchell, um, as the chair of the Appropriations Committee, and really where the buck stops. And if she is, and she's generally a fiscal moderate, um, she's very pragmatic. And if she thinks something has gone as a step too far, it's likely not going to happen. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you both touched on um, Mike Pichak and, and, you know, watch him in the future, rising star kind of thing and whatnot, perhaps. Um, what about um, Phil Scott? Does he have more um, elective service ahead of him, you think? Or is he kind of nearing his end of the road? Well, the conventional wisdom would be that this would be his last term four mm-hmm. terms are a lot yeah. it's a personally taxing job um, we know he is very committed to trying to see the spending of the federal surge in dollars um, through because he's very much a builder and wants to see those results um, on his watch but if there's no uh, buddy coming behind him that he believes in He's going to get pressure. Yeah, he'll get a lot of pressure to stay. And, um, you know, if Mike Pichek's starting to become the, you know, talked about candidate on the Democratic side, but has to have a primary on the horizon where the Bernie Sanders electorate, 
you know, really drives the outcome, which we just saw in the congressional election with Becca Ballant and Molly Gray. Yeah. Right. The Bernie Sanders backed candidate carried the day over the centrist talking um, Pat Leahy backed candidate. Right. So Mike Pichak, if he wants to be Democratic candidate for governor, has to start, you know, focusing on the uh, Democrats agenda more and more. Right. And that will not make Phil Scott feel like he wants to exit and turn over the reins. Interesting. And there's not really a, um, there's not a natural next Republican leader. Um, Joe Benning is, well, you know, we'll see how he does in this race, but there's not really somebody out there. Yeah, what was unique about, when we look back at the Republican governors, yeah, when we look back at the Republican governors, um, Jim Douglas had been holding statewide office for quite some time and was very well understood and as a Republican in a Democrat electorate state was able to win. Phil Scott was state senator for a long time and then lieutenant governor and was able to carry that forward. The Republicans don't have, if Joe Benning doesn't win, a statewide elected uh, name to really groom for the position. Why does it feel to me like in this last uh, round uh, that there was, um, I don't know, it just felt like there was a, a shortage of qualified or potentially successful Republican candidates for any, for, for many positions, uh, legislature. It, it, and it's not that there's not some very good people. It's just there weren't a lot of them seeking election. I think there's, the Republicans are having a bit of identity crisis, <clears throat> probably less so in Vermont than in other places. But there's the mm, sort of moderate old school Republicans that are becoming fewer and fewer and the radical MAGA Republicans. And they, I think they're just having a hard time figuring out who they are. Um, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of um, MAGA Republicans that are running for office right now in House, mm-hmm. um, mostly in House seats. And the Vermonters, you know, for the most part, don't embrace that at all. The extremes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and while while it's true we don't register um, as parties in Vermont, and I don't know the answer to your question in terms of, you know, how people identify, I do sense that there's a lot of independent voters, whether they whether they are would identify as Republicans or not, they their voting is independent. We see that when we see how um, Bernie wins and Phil Scott wins. So people are voting for Bernie and Phil Scott. Right. Um, they're not voting a party line often yeah. in Vermont. Yeah. My sense of the numbers, having studied it, but this isn't data, at our core, it's 40% Democrat, 30% Republican, and 30% independent kind of swing Mm-hmm. voter with some of that being independent progressive, but most of it being the Bernie Sanders and Phil Scott, I call them the UVM hockey arena voter, <laughs> right? The true centrist. Um, and But when we look at the U.S. Senate Republican primary that just happened, we get a little bit of insight into your question because Christina Nolan, the U.S. attorney for Vermont, um, become Republican candidate that the Republican Party establishment was endorsing, lost in that primary 
to a candidate to her right. Mm -hmm. So the kind of Trump voting block in the Republican primary really defined that outcome. And then that candidate goes forward without really any shot at the UVM hockey voter swing um, for a number of reasons. And so the Republican bench is a little bit handicapped by their primary dynamic. Joe Benning had to, the lieutenant governor candidate, um, had to really bend his positions to prevail in the primary, which then really, you know, weakens his posture in the general election because he himself left to his own would be more of a moderate Republican, but to win the primary, you got to swing right. And then that's tough. And so that that's a trap for the Republicans at statewide office level right now after Phil Scott. How do you get a centrist through the primary? Mm -hmm. I don't know that you can. Um, an, a strong, um, what, what I thought was a very strong quasi-leadership Democrat that's not in this race, but I wonder if there's a future for, is... Uh, former AG T.J. Donovan. So do, do you th either of you think he comes back on the scene in the future, or is he just done, close the door and turn the lights out? It would seem he's gone to the private sector, and with you know two yeah. kids in middle school and 20 years of public service behind him, there might be some of the facts of life in sure. that regard kind of overcoming him. Um, and the Vermont electorate really seems intent on electing women to leadership positions, people with um, diversity, equity, inclusion type backgrounds. There's a wave of kind of who you are, not just what you stand for coming right. through. And, you know, T.J. Donovan kind of doesn't seem super competitive in in that uh, lineup. Right. Back to the um, Repub statewide Republicans, it's telling maybe just – is me that's not paying enough attention, but I can't really remember the name of the Republican that's running um, in the AG's race, in the Secretary of State's race, or in the Treasurer's race. I know H. Brooke Page is one of them, and maybe he's in all three of them, but... <laughs> uh, state but, Treasurer running against yeah. Mike Pichak, yeah. But the fact that there's not a known, a well-known um, Republican running in those races right. is kind of telling. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. We, we, yeah, we may be headed the way of Rhode Island, which I understand is like all Democrats, but within the Democrats are a lot of variations, Factions including some that are very yeah. Republican. And, yeah. and so, um, but for sure the electorate is changing and the vote by mail will be an interesting feature to just touch that for a few minutes. Definitely. Because um, while controversial nationally, you know, in Vermont, it was really bipartisan and fully embraced. In fact, the Republicans in some legislative races felt like it the COVID vote by mail option actually helped them get some turnout in some of their rural towns. And in the case of former Speaker Mitzi Johnson, vote by mail from Alberg is credited with potentially making the difference in defeating her. Hmm. And so um, unlike in you know other parts of the country, both parties see vote by mail as a chance to increase their turnout and have a better shot at winning. And all of that's it's about to be kind of unveiled yeah. right it's, now. It's all about voter turnout this year, whether it's early voting or vote by mail. I just read today that the early voting that just started in Georgia 
uh, had the highest voter turnout in the first day of early voting. And I don't know, but I think in a state like Georgia, a high voter turnout votes well for blue, not red. Mm, right. um, but it's going to be really interesting to see in, in those states that have enacted reforms, either to make voting more difficult or to make voting easier, and how that um, impacts the outcome of those elections. Yeah, there have been a lot of uh, NPR-type um, uh, news articles that I've heard uh, over the past couple of weeks about what's going on in different states with attempts to curb, you know, mm-hmm. vote by mail or embrace it, and it's just kind of all over the place depending on which side of the fence you're in and what state you're in, I guess. Um, in Vermont, so you both would agree that in Vermont it serves to uh, generate higher higher voter turnout, so to speak, whether it's in person or by mail? Well, I think we'll see. Um, it, it, it worked during the um, COVID. Right. Um, people got their ballots a few weeks ago, and you know, did they get lost and did they put them in their recycling? You know, did it get, and then are they going to show up at the polls? And um, they, they can still go to the polls. People can still go to the polls to right. vote. But I don't know, do they have to bring their ballot with them? Do you remember? No, I don't. No, I think I've, you do. I've, I think, yeah. If yeah you I, think, I think all that hap- you use it or you don't. And if you use it, of course, there's a system of an envelope inside an envelope, right. and you've got to send them all back and all that kind of stuff. But if you choose to leave it on your kitchen counter and go to the poll instead, then you know it's not going to count it because it didn't get mailed in, and your name's going to get checked off at the poll, right? So I don't think you have to turn it in. I may be wrong. No, that, that sounds about right. And what's, what's really just interesting is you didn't have to ask for the ballot. Everyone got a ballot mailed to them that's, that's a registered voter. And so, um, it, it will, it would, you, you would think it would mean more turnout, but we shall see. I thought this time, I thought you had to request it, but I no. may be wrong. I know I You have went, to request if you want local ballots. And was that for the primary or no, same thing? Because I know I went online before the primary and I had to check off Secretary of State's office and I had to check off a couple boxes and and if I requested it for the primary I automatically got it for the general Um, and yes I did get mine in the mail I don't know a week ago or whenever it was anyway but either way anyway I'm sure a lot of people um, you know are voting that way what what I'm curious about is is it just mostly a shift of people that went to the polls but now it's you know I've got it sitting on my kitchen counter and it's easier to do it this way or is it cause new people to I think there's um, it is becoming a campaign tactic yeah. so that campaigns can encourage people can call people up knock on their doors encourage them to fill out their ballots um, and so they can get that done check check the box and move on like they've got that that voter has cast their ballot um, used to be you know, you have to go to the polls, and right. they call you up and encourage you. Are you going to go to the polls on Tuesday? Um, but now they can actually interact with the with the voter right there with their ballot um, and make sure that they send it in. So I think that the campaign strategies have shifted more towards have you filled out your ballot? Get and more sent people it in. to vote. Right? Yeah. yeah. Can we shift to a a credit union perspective for a second? I mean, all of this we've talked about so far is fascinating 
and you know it doesn't doesn't matter whether you're you know what your walk of life is and whatnot but um you know we do have a credit union audience listening to this so i'm wondering if we can kind of peel away a layer or two about okay how does all of what we just talked about what does it translate to for credit unions doing business in vermont whether it be federal or state looking forward because i know in in congress you know and what's happened um what happened in the, the the prior um congress and has changed again in this one every time there's a shift from you know red to blue or back again um, we see some different tendencies on financial issues, right? So um, when, you know, there's a predominance of Republican control, um, it seems to be more business-oriented, I guess, for-profit business-oriented. And we've seen in some ways that works in favor for financial services, right? Um, but then... You know, when it's a, a a blue set of lawmakers, you know, there's more consumer protection-related kind of focus and whatnot, and sometimes those actions are not so good for financial services or, you know, add some layers of, of control and so on and so forth. So what do you think happens after, in Jan- come January, with our Vermont legislature in terms of what's the impact going to be on credit unions if it ends up being a supermajority of blue in the House and still blue in the, in the Senate, but, you know, people that are um, gung-ho about, you know, tackling new projects and whatnot. I think we're going to see um, some <clears throat> data privacy protections, which could impact credit unions. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the goal of the data privacy regulations um, really goes to the heart of what credit unions business is, but sometimes we get swept in kind sure. of unknowingly. So right. that's where that's where our work comes in to try and um, make sure that the, the, that the walls are clear and the lines are clear and that w- our work is not getting swept in because that's not their, it's not generally, we're not generally the target of the regulation. Um, there'll be more consumer protection it was interesting. I don't know if you read the article recently that said that Vermont has the lowest, by far, rate of foreclosure than any state in the country, which I think is really helpful because we've seen the legislature, um, for good reason, trying to protect homeowners on the edge and tenants. Um, that that may not become an issue that we have to contend with um, for the regulation in um the foreclosure and debt collection that we've had to deal with in the past, that may not be a, a big issue because the problem may not be as big as, uh, as people thought it was. Um, the new attorney general, Charity Clark, kind of uh, is really gung-ho on consumer protection. She comes out of more of a policy background, whereas attorney general... T.J. Donovan came from a criminal prosecution background, and so her instincts are going to be more kind of consumer protection oriented, and the data privacy is one example. She would tell you that the number one thing she hears about from voters at the polls are is robocalls, 
and trying to regulate them. And they're a perfect example of something where we may have automatically generated calls. You have a fraud alert on your card that we are going to have to dig into a bit of consumer protection reactiveness going on in the state house to make sure our lanes are still protected. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's the rise of um, liberals in power means more focus on the consumer aspect of things and less on the business institution. Um, Meanwhile, for the better, we have a consistent deputy commissioner for um, banking at DFR, Mm -hmm. and that provides us a really consistent voice when push comes to shove. And so that's really valuable and couldn't be overstated how significant it is to have a trusted regulator Mm -hmm. amidst a policy environment where there's a lot of passion for um, fighting back at Amazon.com banking and Mm -hmm. robocall from Florida scamming. And, you know, it's the bad apple that spoils the barrel, and we're often in that barrel. With regard to credit unions generally, we're always guarding against the uh, tax agenda that the bank owners lobbying association foists at us um, for the better it looks like the incoming leadership of the house ways and means committee it very much is a co-op minded lawmaker um, emily kornheiser from brattleboro and that will be a significant corner office that uh, the credit union movement will be wise to pay attention to um, the uh, finance committee will go through a lot of change compared to years past Senator Mark McDonald will remain likely, although he is one of the three contested Senate elections, one in Orange, one in Franklin, and one in Rutland, that are up for grabs. But when the question is, what does the election mean for the credit union movement specifically? Well, we're really looking to see our core champions um, hold power Mm -hmm. in key places on the tax and finance committees. And as lobbyists, that's really where we look to make sure there's a backstop against Um, fast-moving, passionate agendas that would have unintended disruptive consequences. Right. Not really going to the heart of the business, but as employers, credit unions, um, I'm sure, are facing workforce challenges like everybody else, and their employees are having a hard time finding childcare and housing. Um, So in that respect, there could be work that's being done in the state house this year that will impact um, in a maybe in a hard way and some in a good way, the the work of the employer, the, the credit union employers. Great. Other issues that either of you can think of that are going to be hot uh, in the next session in the State House, not necessarily specific, definitely not specific to credit unions, but um, just general issues that you haven't touched on yet? Well, just one to note is, um, and this lacks excitement, but it's what's very real, it is a historic amount of federal money that has come in, Mm -hmm. and it comes with strict guidelines, and there will be a lot of work going on to make sure that it can get out the door and applied in good ways. Priorities seem to be the broadband for all expansion agenda, getting the last mile built out, uh, the um, workforce supports to promote greater um, workforce increase the demographics of young workers uh, housing which isn't everything ranging from poverty programs to you know middle income we just need more construction um, type investments and then the 
kind of hot topic of climate change really runs strong in the Democrats in the state house. And they like to battle that by promoting electric cars and increased insulation in commercial and residential buildings. And so all of that is tied together by this federal spending that's come through inspired by COVID, but then really boosted by the Inflation Reduction Act. And uh, lawmakers will have to grapple with making sure that they don't squander that opportunity. Um, For hotter topics, and just to throw uh, a little bit of everyday life out there where Washington comes to Montpelier, the change in the Supreme Court has really put a number of decisions into the laps of state legislatures around the country, Um, things relating to gun violence prevention, um, public school, uh, the allocation of public school dollars into religious schools, for example, private schools, and um, uh, reproductive health care rights are all hot topics that the new U.S. Supreme Court really changed the law on from what Mm -hmm. we've all been accustomed to for 50 years. And we will see lawmakers grappling with all three of those big decisions to try and see how they can generally navigate their change agendas or their status quo protection through that new net. Another issue and somewhat related to gun violence prevention, another issue that we're hearing a lot about is um, efforts to address the extremely high rate of suicide in Vermont, um, much higher than our neighboring states and lawmakers trying to get a handle on that and trying to figure out what they can do to curb that rate. Um, Related to that is substance abuse, and um, we've had a skyrocketing um, overdose problem in the past couple years, probably related to COVID, but legislators are going to try and address that as well. The rising cost of health care as employers is definitely on our leadership's agenda. We will see rate increases up, up, and up. Um, The hospital system seems fragile, even though it consumes a huge amount of money. And so what we really have is a number of human service systems, healthcare, public education, that declare themselves fragile, yet they're huge cost drivers. Um, Electric rates are going up. We're going to see the politics of cost of living, the governor's kind of core focus, come more to the fore, even as Democrats in the legislature kind of get excited about things around, um, you know, civil rights and climate change. So it's really going to be a mashup of the economy meets, uh, you know, hot topics that uh, the electorate likes to bring from the global stage to the local capital. Uh, so two things real quick, uh, to one to follow up and one new. Um, you mentioned about, um, you know, the... the uh, climate change and whatnot and that kind of, and I forget whether you mentioned EVs, uh, EV vehicles specifically, but it reminded me of, um, this is kind of going to be a silly question. Uh, do you see a day where someone in the Vermont legislature tries to push, uh, legislation, um, like we read about, I don't know, fairly recently about New York city banning the sale of gasoline cars, um, by, I forget what year it was in oh, the future. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, California, I think they're banning gasoline-powered lawnmowers in, really? in, in the near future and have a mandate for all electric cars in the 2030-something space. Um, the short answer is yes, as California politics go, 
Democrats in the legislature try to go. Um, the EV revolution is underway. Whether it becomes a mandate is is a yeah. whole different question, and it does seem a little far-fetched sitting here um, thinking about it that way because we're a small state and can't drive that market. Um, but the, the drive for the electric vehicle is strong and, and coming fast. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, the governor's now being driven around in an electric Ford F-150. I didn't know that. Yeah, the official state vehicle is an electric truck. Wow. Watch the CAX news clip on it. He loves it. <laughs> As an electric vehicle owner myself, I'll just say it makes dollars and cents now. It, I, at the time, I thought, well, I'm the lobbyist for Tesla. I ought to drive one. Right. And then when you get into the math of it, when gas prices went up, it's simply a better deal. Yeah. Yeah. And so it'll be more and more. And as credit unions, I know we're in the business of home mortgages and car loans. Um, and the provocative question, direct to consumer practices are, you know, depicted by some coming in the car industry will be a more and more occurring form of transaction. And so just for credit unions and regulators, it's a very provocative area of change when the dealer franchise system comes under pressure from direct-to-consumer manufacturers, right. which seem to be using the advent of the electric car as an opportunity to go that way. You know, CarMax uh, is an example that's not really electric car, but is direct-to-consumer. And for lenders, it's probably a more and more occurring transaction. And for the regulator, needing to make sure without a really strong intermediary system in place, how will they um, protect consumers in that space? For sure. Yeah, that whole automobile dealer world is changing a lot. Maybe not quite so much uh, right here around Vermont neighborhoods, uh, but they've got to be feeling it because, you know, my drive past car dealerships, I thought, you know, they had reduced inventories like every car dealer did during COVID. But I still see, you know, a shortage of vehicles in car dealer lots uh, as I drive by now. Um, so, you know, the method is changing. It'll be like some furniture stores probably, you know, have one sample of each car and then decide what order, what color you want to order it in and what features and whatnot. And, you know, maybe you do it online. I don't know. I ordered my car in 20 minutes online. Did you? And then flew to New Jersey, pick it up, handed a check at a kiosk and wow. drove away. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I can say it's awesome. Maybe the local Vermont car dealer doesn't think it's awesome. No, they don't like it. But I'll say this. My credit union was awesome Great. giving me the, the check to make that happen, working with the direct-to-consumer seller and smoothing that process. So, of course, you know, as a credit union member, I'm really excited that they made it work for me. Um, the other issue that, that came to mind that um, is uh, – I don't think it's on par with, as far as reality in the legislature as a really big issue. It's not on par with some of the things, any of the things that you probably were throwing out. But it does keep coming back every few years. And somebody mentioned to me the other day about the likelihood of somebody bringing up the issue of public banking again. Um, and I know that, you know, that's come up in a lot of states. And ever since everybody... Uh, lawmakers and probably most state house, you know, learned about what goes on in North Dakota. Um, totally different situation than we have in Vermont and probably most other states. But, you know, lawmakers that hear about that, you know, kind of start 
getting excited a little bit about you know the possibility of doing something similar in their respective states. And I think we've seen that happen in Vermont before. Um, so do you, do you ever hear about you know people that are again resuscitating that issue and thinking it's a good idea to pursue and whatnot, or is that one of those perennial things that you know somebody brings up, but it doesn't really? I haven't seen it get traction yet. We aren't hearing that it's coming up again. Um, the folks that would be bringing it up. One of the uh, they're still around uh, in the Senate is where it usually comes up. Hmm. Um, it's usually falls on the facts, like the the the, the state of Vermont um, banking doesn't really uh, necessitate this new entity Um, there hasn't been a real need for it other than a philosophical desire for it Um, so unless you know we're pretty pragmatic state unless there's a problem that we're trying to solve um, I'm not thinking that it's going to get much traction again this year do do you think there's a problem that needs to be solved Joe I don't I don't know if I'd say there's a problem needs to be solved but I, I guess I when I when we've testified on it before, just more for educational kind of purposes, explaining this is what credit unions do and here's the places that credit unions get, uh, you know, I'll call it wholesale services from and whatnot. And, you know, to the extent that the public bank you want to create would providing be providing wholesale services, you know, maybe there's something for us to explore. If it's going to provide, um, you retail. know, end user retail consumer financial services, then we have a different discussion app. And I, I suspect when we've talked to legislators in the past that they fall into those, those that have interest fall into those two camps. And I don't know if any of them are in both camps that, you know, some look at it like if there's revenue opportunities, they're looking at it as look at all these wholesale things that the Bank of North Dakota does and imagine if we did those there, here. And our discussion before with legislators was that, well, we have most of those structures. They're just separate things in Vermont. And so you're either going to have to be in competition with those. Like, do you really want to be in competition with, you know, VHFA and VSAC and so on and so forth? Or do you want to, you know, replace those entities? And then there's those lawmakers that I think are get more intrigued by the idea that, you know, there's a people's bank kind of thing that, you know, is doing well, basically what a credit union does, you know. Right. Uh, the champions of that agenda, Senator Anthony Polina and Senator mm-hmm. Chris Pearson, retired. And so the advocates for that reform are in a rebuilding mode. Different people, yeah. Uh, and Phil Scott would be unlikely to support mm. that type of a new structure. You know, he doesn't want to grow government. Hmm. So yeah. And Mike Pichek? Would hold that hot potato and... Uh, <laughs> And hear uh, both sides. And hear both sides. <laughs> and consider, you know, being open-minded <laughs> while he kind of... But, um, you know, Mike Pichek as treasurer will have to grapple with the drive to divest Vermont from uh, oil stocks. Yeah. yeah, and the current treasurer, Beth Pierce, really held off even opening the door to that conversation. And so, you know, they're the, the hot civic engagement around climate change might land in his office some when it comes mm. to the divestiture conversation. Yeah, right. He takes a more nuanced approach. <laughs> um, before we 
And I, I, one wild card that we didn't discuss when it comes to voter turnout and home ballots is that Article 22 is on the is is on the ballot this year, and that's the the Reproductive Liberty Amendment, and it's popular in polling, and that could um, inspire people to get their ballots in, uh, and that could if if those people weren't uh, regular voters, that could also impact races that they decide to weigh in on um, in a way that we aren't predicting now. Right. And it's the topic we might see the outside, the rush of outside spending at the last minute that wow. would come because it's a national battle line. So, I, you know, we've seen a little bit of reference in the primary to, you know, I guess I'll call it outside spending and, and whatnot um, in the. Um, the Democratic primary, you know, Becca balance race and whatnot. But other than that, I haven't heard much about that in Vermont races. So. Not too much. I haven't seen that much on TV or in the mail, just the usual amount. Yeah. Um, and as Adam said, the last two weeks, the last two weeks historically have been a time of high spending. But now that we have mail-in ballots and the ba- people have been voting for the past two weeks, um, that waiting for the last minute is probably not the best use of resources right. um, or have the biggest impact. So far, I think there's been a million dollars spent on both sides of Article 22, and I would have expected that number to be higher um, at this point. So we'll see what happens in the next two weeks. I know that, um, you know, at a federal level for congressional races in some other states, you know, uh, CULAC, uh, our credit union federal PAC, um, you know, has contributed significantly to a lot of candidates. And also, um, you know, our national organization has, um, you know, expended some funds in discretionary spending, you know, support particular candidates and, you know, un, un connected advertising and whatnot in critical, you know, highly competitive races uh, for credit union champions. But, you know, I've never seen that really in Vermont. Um, so, Well, as we wrap the, at the exit, there is a lot of excitement in the credit union movement for Becca Ballant as a yeah, congressperson. For sure. You know, the National Credit Union movement got behind her. Right. Um, she has a, a deep commitment to the cooperative business model. And you know, we're excited, Joe, uh, how you've kind of helped her grow her understanding of the credit union movement. So nice job in that regard, getting, you know, the movement behind her in her election. And we can anticipate um, real good attention from her. And I would want our, so. our credit union leaders listening to the podcast to know, invite her to the office, give right. her tours, bring her around. She's a people person. She really wants to be out and around the state. Um, as far as the credit union movement goes, she and Senator Sanders are really strong beacons for us that could be national leaders on our watch. Similarly in Washington, like in Montpelier, we get lumped in with the big banks. Thanks, you know, Chase Bank right. for right. your deeds rubbing off on the credit union movement. But uh, it will take her sophistication to really help us navigate through to balanced outcomes. And so Becca Ballant for... The, that congressional seat is a breath of fresh air for the credit union movement, and yeah, there's a lot I of agree. excitement there. Uh, I there was agree. some stale air there, there before. <laughs> credit union should be excited about uh, Becca because she'll be very supportive. I know that our 
uh, folks at CUNA are very excited about her uh, based on what they, they know of her and have come to learn about her and whatnot. I know the last time that I spoke to her, which was post-primary, um, she, um, she was talking about what it would be like to be you know, a new uh, member of the House of Representatives and how uh, this would be, although she's you know, a seasoned uh, lawmaker at the state level in Congress, there's a new roadmap for her to follow and everything. And she was uh, um, kind of kidding around with me about how you know, there needs to be kind of like a new House member orientation day or something, you know, like you have for new employees or something, because it's just the little stuff of you know, finding your way around physically, much less politically and whatnot. I think she'll be great. Um, so I, we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you very much for being here, both of you, uh, and having this discussion with us. Um, it's been great, and we'll see what happens in three weeks uh, on, on November 8th. Uh, we've reached the end of this Vermont Credings on Air podcast and hope you have found it interesting. Hear all of our previously recorded podcasts by searching for Vermont Credit News on Air in the iTunes Store, SoundCloud.com, or in your favorite podcast player. If you've got ideas for a podcast and something you'd like to hear about, send it to podcast at vermontcreditunions.coop. And in the meantime, this is Joe Bergeron with Jessica Oski and Adam Nekrasen thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.